Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 253rd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Kyle McConaughey, Austin Kress, and Kevin Schumacher. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Unlow. Today we've got Daniel Scarpati. He's the author of a new book, Gophers, on the front lines of film and television. It's a book about being a PA, being a production assistant, which is a thing we allude to all the time and something that everyone will tell you. That's, you know, the first job you ever get in Hollywood is as a production assistant, which is true. But also we don't talk about it a ton because it's been a minute since Oren and I have been PAs. Oren, as a quick sidetrack, tell me the brief history of your PA career. I don't know if I would call it a career, <laughs> but when I first moved to L.A., I wanted to just be on set as much as possible. And I whenever there was any opportunity to help out uh, my friend, I have a couple of friends that went to AFI and I. PA'd and boom opt on those things. I, I PA'd on, I think my roommate, I mentioned she uh, was a camera loader. So she got me to PA on some big music videos. I did this Jamiroquai music video, the one I got fired from. There's no better way to get on set and to learn. But it's surprisingly... That's what you get for showing up to set virtually insane. <laughs> yes. It's interesting because it's not like, it, it. while it is kind of an entry level job, it's not like a job where you can literally just know nothing and show up to set and hang out you yeah it, it's there quite are brutal good PAs, i think actually and there yeah, are there's, bad a, PAs. there's a, a huge chasm between good pas and bad pas and the ones that are fast learners i think become good pas really quickly if you have hustle and you're paying attention you'll get there no problem but those first couple jobs can be quite bewildering yeah and i think anyone that has any interest in like figuring out how to get into Hollywood and on set uh, should check out this book. Even just the table of contents, which is on Amazon is so great because Daniel just kind of breaks down all the different types of things you would do as a PA on set and kind of what productions are. And he even talks about like sleep and about finances and about the freelance life. It, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, what's funny though, or in, uh, because I would liken my PA quote unquote career to yours in that like, Neither of us did it a ton. And pretty quickly, we started doing other, we started specializing. We started doing, you know, we, I became an art PA relatively quickly and, you know, or I was in intern places, things like that. But I think that there is a, a, a big, big distinction between a person who is 
volunteering on a small, let's say a student short or something like that, where everyone's taking things quite seriously, but uh, it's more of a flat management style where the, the hierarchy isn't quite so deep. Whereas Daniel has a ton of experience working on big TV shows and feature films, things that are so big that there's a department of PAs. And so you don't, Daniel wouldn't go from being a PA to a boom op over the course of a, a week worth of shooting because there are unions involved and the people boom operating are much more skilled than a guy who just has a lot of endurance or whatever. <laughs> right, know? who's willing to hold the boom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think that his expertise and his experience, I think, really shines through in a way that um, ours is lacking a little bit in that way, you know? For sure. It's, I mean, there's this kind of like trade-off in Hollywood that I'm sure everybody knows about it, which is the lower position you're willing to be on for longer, the higher in the Hollywood network you can plug yourself into. So if you're willing to work in the mailroom, you, you know, even though you went to Harvard or whatever, you can work at, yeah, the biggest agencies with the biggest stars of Steven Spielberg and Julia Roberts and all, the, you know, whatever. If you want to be a DP on day one, then you're going to be shooting stuff for your friend, you know, and it's going to be small and you'll work your way into bigger things and indie things and corporate stuff. And, you know, but if you want to be working on, you know, The Walking Dead or something and you get to be like the assistant to a writer or something, that's like, even though it might seem like a low, low job on the totem pole, it's like. You're, you're plugging yourself in at a much higher level in, in the Hollywood. The pole itself is higher up the mountain, we'll say. <laughs> yeah. Stretch that me metaphor a little too far. Yeah. Well, I, and I think that's interesting. I think that I don't know that we talked too much with Daniel about, but I, you know, I think everyone has to kind of make a choice at a certain point about where they want to land on all of that, you know? And I think that when you're in a Hollywood environment that's really structured, I think some people really take to that and some people chafe against it a little bit more. And so, you know, I think that's uh, one of the first big decisions that every filmmaker has to make is like, where where do you want to fit in and all of that? And so, yeah, I think, um, like I said, Daniel's got a ton of insight about what it takes to be a great production assistant, especially uh, in the, the big leagues. Yeah. I do wonder sometimes I'll see on Twitter someone say like, hey, this is my path to selling my first, you know, screenplay to a studio. I started as an assistant here and then I became a story editor. Then I did this. Then I wrote one episode on this show. Then I starved for three years and I did this. And, and then I now sold my first script like 15 years later. And I think to myself, like, if I wanted to follow that path, there's no way anyone would hire me to be that like office PA assistant, you know, maybe they would, but they'd probably rather hire someone like kind of straight out of college, right? Yeah, it is tricky. I think there is like a little bit of an internal bias because those jobs do not pay well. And so there is this perception that the older you are, the larger your quote unquote nut is, right? Like, do you have a mortgage? Do you have people to support all of that stuff? I've, I've known uh, PAs who were, you know, um, older than your average PA for sure. And I think that, again, it kind of boils down to what sort of environment you're in. But I think the other thing that's really important and that people learn relatively quickly, but it's worth thinking about, is that, like, there's a big difference between a set PA versus an office PA versus a writer's PA, and they all have different pathways. So, like, it's ideal that if you are on set that you want to either be in production or be an AD. And if you want to be a writer, then you kind of want to be in the writer's room. And so sometimes the term PA is just kind of lumped 
we kind of lump all of those different jobs together, but like one person is locking up a city street so that people don't walk into a shot. Another person is photocopying a ton and another person is literally taking notes for a ton of writers all at once. And then, you know, if you lump an assistant in there as well, then it, 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 the job becomes even more varied. So, yeah. And um, if you get to the very top, top, top rung, you can bring a burrito to James Cameron and then he will <laughs> throw it on the screen because you accidentally put sour cream in it. You know, I think James Cameron's supposed to be pretty nice. Michael Bay. There you go. Michael Bay will scream at you. Yeah. Is Cam- Cameron not nice? I've heard he's specific about his burrito. <laughs> well, look, I, I respect that at a certain point. You know, That's how I am with half and half. People know. People know. Don't cross me with your whole milk. So uh, before we talk to Daniel, I just had like a quick topic that I was curious your thoughts on, which is about social media and as and as a freelancer. There are some directors I know that we both know that will kind of post photos of themselves on set often, like on Instagram and Twitter. Like, here's this. Here's a tip I learned. Here's this. This is fun. Or Hey, it's on this, I worked with this actor and something happened with this actor today, so I'm going to post this thing. And I feel like as a freelancer, part of the way you get work is by reminding the world that you are a director. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you're working, right? Work begets work. Exactly. So I was curious, like, do you ever... I feel like you don't really do that. I don't see you posting, like, shots from set, like, you know, six months after you're on set or, like, you know... You know, I I do that if I have the foresight to get the shots, basically, you know, and and also like what sort of relationship do I have with certain other crew members? Like sometimes I'll talk to an AD and I'll be like, hey, could you make sure you get like a couple good photos or, you know, like a pal, basically, like if I, you know, if I'm genuine friends with someone, we kind of like look out for each other on that front. Or if it's like something where the schedule is comfortable enough that i'm not gonna be slowing the show down you know and also but i just mean like selfies of talent or just photos you take like you see jordan brady's always like hey look here's my storyboards you know and this is why i put them on on a big i would say i haven't been posting much since the pandemic but like if you look through my instagram feed i think it's more set shots than it is other things right i guess i'm just saying like do you think there's value in kind of keeping this heartbeat alive on social media, showing people you at work, even though let's say you might have like a dry spell for a few months and you're not working, but, but we, we know like the way we get jobs is we tell people like, Oh yeah, I'm a director and I'm working on this and this. And then they're like, Oh, you know what? I also am doing it. I need a dog sure. director. Like, yeah, Matt I, does I dogs. think certainly, uh, certainly it's valuable. Over the years, I've done it less because the mechanisms for which I by which I get work have changed. But it's always good just to kind of remind people that you're doing fun, cool things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's yeah, part definitely. of like the fun with like all my blender stuff and things like my own home projects is it's maybe I haven't directed something noteworthy or something that I can take photos at, post photos from in a while, but at least I can post something and say like hey this is hey i'm a filmmaker here's you know you know what's funny here's me being a filmmaker. i hadn't thought about it the complication of like i had a handful of like solid photos and great spots that i was really excited about last year for whatever reason always lined up with something where it felt insensitive to post about it <laughs> 
Do you know what I mean? Like if you're in the if the country's in the middle of like a coup or uh, civil unrest or whatever. I remember you made or, that video talking about how fun it is to make out with random people and then COVID hit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, no. For whatever reason, I was just was like, well, I'll just kind of stow this away and, and think about posting about it later. And so, I, yeah, I, it has been on my to-do list to repost or post the spots that I'm especially proud of that I shot last year. And so I, I also, frankly, you know, to be personal, Facebook has put a pretty bad taste in my mouth as of late and so i've tried to really wean myself off of it and yeah i haven't uh, i haven't posted there much partially because of that and so there is that kind of balance of it is the place where a lot of my business contacts are and you know we don't really have like linkedin isn't really a thing unless you are working with really corporate sorts of shows you know like my WB friends are all on LinkedIn. My Comedy Central friends are all on LinkedIn. But my crew friends, for the most part, are still Facebook friends or Instagram friends or something like that. Right. So I'm looking on your Instagram right now, Mr. Matt Enloe. Yeah. And yeah. I see it's, everything's pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. You have like a photo from 14 weeks ago when you were on set on the Halloween thing that, you know, I, I did a couple of VFX shots on for you. And uh, it's just one picture of you there with a cool hat. It says, just shoot it. Um, I didn't take many photos be- because it was during COVID too. So it was just like, it was like a kind of a gnarly day, you know? Yeah. Like we did, speaking of like not having the leisure or the time or knowing anyone well enough to be like, hey, take a photo of me pointing while I'm wearing 16 masks. Yeah. Just as like a thought experiment, would it be fun to like clip like the part where like the guy hits the pumpkin with the baseball bat or like something and just say like, you know, we went through seven pumpkins doing this. Like it's a, always fun to find, you know, or, or yeah, certainly. Or, or I think also, our, you know, our friend Roxy, previous guest of the show, I think she's got a show out called Mira Mira that's rolling out as we speak on Facebook. Watch everyone go check it out. Mira Mira, M-I-R-A space M-A-R-A. Anyway, she did a thing where she would show a still as one shot and then you would see the board as the other shot. And I've thought about that. Or you do those great animatics. The boards on those spots are really good. So yeah, I should do it, but uh, I just haven't. I, uh, partially because also like I want things to really be back for good. I feel like the yo-yo of commercial work in particular has been really so volatile that like one week, you know, my reps will be like, we're all so excited. We're back in it. We've got 16 boards for you. And then, the next you know, week, two days later, I'm like, you know, how's, how's my reel going? And they're just like, what? Yeah. So, yeah, I've kind of waited for that reason as well. But all of which is to say, I'm probably overthinking it. Is social media good for your career? Yes. All caps for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are some directors that I know have not done much but they're from their instagram it looks like they're doing awesome things and i'm like ooh, i wonder if she would want to come on the podcast or something because i'm seeing all these cool things and then i see these other posts i'm like oh no she's You're like just... wait a minute that's 15 years old <laughs> yeah 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 or one year <laughs> you're old. shooting yeah. on film yeah or a one-year-old yeah totally yeah, yeah yeah but yeah just something i've been thinking about lately and because i do think that some of my work lately has come from me just you know, posting about yeah, and people working. saying like, "Hey, yeah. I saw you're working on this thing. You know, would you be into this thing?" Where it just kind of gave them an in, or at least reminded them that I exist. You know, yeah, yeah, um, totally. Anyhow, cool. Anything else? That's it, man. I think uh, I think let's talk to Mr. Scarpati, Daniel Scarpati, about becoming an awesome 
production assistant after we remind everyone about patreon.com slash just shoot it pod if you're listening to the show you probably already know that we have a patreon page where you can go and throw us a couple bucks to show your support we've got a handful of people working on the show now kind of a you know a, a not insignificant amount of overhead and all of that money even if it's a couple bucks a month goes towards paying our editor sarah who's there to make sure that shows are going up on time and that our unpaid endorsements are around Derek Aiello, who's posting everything on social media so that you know who our guests are, what's happening next, and being reminded of when you want to listen to the show. And we got a little bit of new gear. There's been a bit of a strain on remote recording recently, so we've had to upgrade things here and there. Uh, all of that money goes to keeping the show kicking and, and alive. And honestly, I don't know if we could do the show without Derek and Sarah at this point. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm... I think we'd probably yeah. slack off and just not do it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm barely, barely present uh, emotionally or mentally. Most of what I say is uh, driven by an AI. Yeah, yeah, um, I'm blacked out right now. I just uh, can't <laughs> even see straight. Um, no, but uh, check it out. Patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. We appreciate it. And here is Daniel. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. Daniel, you wrote the book on, on being a PA, and I was the saddest combination of a PA who was so invested, who was trying his hardest, and was genuinely terrible. I was a really, really bad PA. So uh, that it always makes me laugh. I was lucky that I managed to move into different areas of, of the industry there to kind of bypass it. But I was genuinely bad. Or did you PA much? <laughs> it yeah, couldn't have been I, that bad. <laughs> I thought I was a great PA. It was the only job I've ever been fired from. And I did have a director one time yell to the producer, why is the fucking PA giving me notes about me? Yeah, the the number one uh, worst thing you can do as a PA is give the director notes. That the is director notes or the cast notes, half a dozen in one. Yeah, that's oh, either one. dude. I, yeah, I think I told you I did a shoot where the PA was like locking up, so he was like next to the car where the actress was sitting, and she was like just having trouble getting. It was like a real like forced, unnatural line of dialogue that some like creative person wrote somewhere. It was it was a bad dialogue. She was just really having trouble selling it. And so we did it take after take after take. After four takes, the PA comes over. He's like, you know, what if you're just like really pissed off? What if you say it? And I was like, um, can I talk to you for a second? 
Do not. No, ever. no, no. That's not exactly the that. way that works. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, the, when I gave the note to the director, it was like, first of all, I, I shouldn't have, and I had no idea what I was doing. But it was a student film. Um, it wasn't like same. Yeah, on, yeah. I was on law and yeah, order. Yeah. Or anything. yeah, you do. And look, that's the advantage of doing a student film is you make some pretty dumb mistakes, and because they're not paying you, hopefully they in a thoughtful way teach you the right way to do something rather than just scream at you or fire you. But anyway, Daniel, I have a hunch that you've got a lot more insight about uh, what it takes to be a great PA than that one, albeit important piece of advice. Tell us about the book. Uh, where can people buy it before we um, we kind of give people a taste? It's called Gophers on the front lines of film and television. Uh, it is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, at some local bookstores if you're in New York City. Uh, we're working on getting it at a book review in Long Island out in uh, Huntington, I think it is. But yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, www.passingplanes.com slash book. All the links. Are I love so much that you got into a couple of local bookshops. That's great, man. That's awesome. That's been my number one. One of my number one priorities this year was to to see it on a shelf somewhere local that you know is near a lot of the studios that the stories in the book you know are taking place and uh, be able to share it with the local community and give them an option outside of the big box stores online, which is you know they're great, they're awesome, but in a time of supporting local businesses, I thought it would be a a little bit of a boost for them too. So all the boats rise. Awesome. Well, Daniel, yeah. Why, why did you, uh, what inspired you to write the book? Why'd you, um, dive into this endeavor? Yeah. Given that I think most people get the PA job to get into the industry and try as fast as they can to get past the PA job. It was, um, a lot of things, a lot of reasons that I decided to write it. One of, one of the things that made it happen, I tried to put a positive spin on the negative. Like I'm sure, uh, you know, I know from listening to your past episodes and a few other podcasts about the industry and news articles, everybody's trying to find ways to stay busy, uh, and stay active during the pandemic that we're all still very much in. And, uh, the, this time that I had this forced time off, uh, was the inspiration I needed to sit down and finish this project that I began working on uh, three or so years ago. The idea kind of started coming into my head as I was working on set. Oh, and earlier you said I wrote the book on production assistance. I want to be very fair and say two things right off the bat. There are other books, uh, a few others about being a production assistant. It's a very small handful based on what I know. There could be more, but nobody was ever writing about the emotional and physical health side of things, which I thought was a very very big nobody nobody talked about it nobody well, talked the, about you the know life. the reason that they don't talk, tell you how like what the hours are like for on a film set in film school it's because you would decide not to be a filmmaker you'd be like wait a minute i'm gonna work for peanuts for years and i'm gonna sleep six hours if i'm lucky for months at a time uh dad you're right i'm gonna go into real estate <laughs> you're not wrong i think i think less people would uh be so inclined to hit the ground running if they knew. But I, I, there's a part of me that likes to believe the more that people know and the more that they're armed with, the better educated they'll be and the more selective they'll be when they reach the point that they can be selective, you know, in that really beginning phase of when I knew no one, because I come from a family where my, you know, my dad works in the dental field and a dental laboratory and my mother was a, you know, assistant religious education teacher. So I'm pretty far removed from the industry as many of us are. I think everybody here is right. Did anyone have any kind of direct connection onto a no. set? Or yeah, no, no, but certainly. I, mean, um... I did watch the Zucker movie Top Secret over a hundred times. <laughs> so if that doesn't count for something, wait, did you have you that. really seen that movie a hundred times? And I'm just now finding out about this. 
top As a secret? kid, I would watch it probably. My dad had it on VHS, and I'd probably watch it like 10 times a summer when I would stay at his house. Oh, wow. I think it was Jurassic Park or Lost World for me. The two of those together, that was that was my 100-time movie. Um, yeah, I, I, I know what that's like. <laughs> Actually, just to go totally off course, as I usually do, uh, what do you guys think is better like as an entry-level job in either Hollywood or New York or the film industry, do you think it's better to PA on like a big show, like a law and order or some big show, you know, girls, whatever's shooting in New York. Or do you think it would be better to be like a grip or an electrician or like kind of have a slightly higher uh, level job on like an indie film or like a student film? Cause I always, I always thought about that. Like there's the people that go and work at the mail room at CAA versus the people that go and try to, you know, write a short film and make it like, and even though they have a technically higher level job on this indie project, they're not getting plugged in with the big players like you would in the mailroom of, of CAA. I'll, I'll jump in quickly and say, I, I still think it's tough because you specified if you're going to be the higher up position that would be on an indie film. I was going to, to caution. And if you were going to say, say on a big show, you know, start as a PA or start as an apprentice or even a PA for some camera departments have a camera PA. I, I think that a lot of those departments, uh, the ones that are members of unions, uh, will really encourage a person to stick with it if they're good. And you will very quickly be fast tracked on that one path. Whereas if you're a production assistant or one of those non-union positions, location assistant in some areas, you have a little more freedom to say, I don't necessarily have to go this way if I've started working and I'm on the union track, I can be a little bit more, you know, anybody can, can move around, but I, I think I would go the PA route in that scenario. Right. But you think like being like starting on a big show is that's what you did, right? You kind of started on big Hollywood type stuff. I started on small. I started on pretty small actually when I didn't know anybody, anybody, and, you know, I took to Craigslist. I took to a lot of the places where people still take to, to, to find those opportunities. And I've heard you talk about in episodes past, you know, just looking for work that anybody would hire me for free, no pay. I just need experience. And I got taken advantage of just like a lot of people do in the beginning. Uh, but, you know, you meet that one person who goes to a paying job and says, hey, I could get you a PA spot on this one, 50 bucks for the day. It's a 18 hour day, but hey, you'll be, and I'd say, of course, uh, you know, you do enough of those and then eventually you, you get referred by someone who knows someone to that PA job on, you know, Madam Secretary or, or you know, Murphy Brown, uh, you know, one of the other shows I eventually ended up on. Uh, and it took, it took time, but eventually they, they came through. And did it seem like on the bigger shows you had less, you had more focused responsibilities than on the like in, independent like the Craigslist jobs, like on a Craigslist job, I imagine the PA is carrying sandbags and picking up lunch and driving yeah, actors. I mean, you're kind of describing the difference between union and non-union though, right? Like even though the PA may not be union, if transpo is, then you're sure shit not driving people around, for instance, right? Right. Or if, or if you are, and you're being asked to do that by the producer, then hopefully you have a teamster captain who's going to go yell at the producer and not you. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've had yeah. it both ways. I've been yelled at and, you know, watched the the person say, I'm not mad at you, but I'm very mad and I need to go handle this. And then I just hear screaming and expletives from, <laughs> from somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question, Oren, I think that I think it's feasible to do a little bit of both because I think that the value of being a PA is in 
having the ability to observe how things work without being necessarily involved in every single aspect of things. Do you know what I mean? Like you can watch a union show and be like, oh, I see the differences between this and something smaller. You know, I I think the other alternative is like being an office PA, which we don't talk about as much on the show, which maybe feels less glamorous in the sense that you're not on set and you're not like in the mix quite the same way. You know, you're just like in an office, but gives you insight to how studios work, for instance, or how production works. You know, there's a lot of different things that can be really great. Yeah. Yeah. Let's sit. If you're cool, then can we just kind of go through the table of contents of your book? And yeah, that's fine. Just, just talk about some things. So you're, the second chapter is called What I Wish They Taught in School. Yes. The, the first, not to skip over it, showbiz means war. That is what I learned. That's the biggest lesson that I learned that I like to instill in a lot of people who you know say to me, what is what is being a PA like? And it feels just like being on a, you know, in 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 an active field of war sometimes with the proximity to, to firearms and uh you know stunts on some shows like the blacklist. I mean it's crazy. You feel like you're in the middle of a battlefield. And who's the enemy in your metaphor? In my metaphor, the enemy it, probably all the people who continuously put you down as a PA. <laughs> you just what oh, you really want to fight say, like, them back. Time but, or something. No, 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 no. It's a very personal enemy. Their time is everybody's enemy. Time and money, but no. As a PA, it's the people who are trying to put you down. And you think those people are for real? Like what we've seen in movies of PAs being talked down to, like all those kind of that stigma. You, you think that's a real thing? It definitely exists. I have seen it firsthand. I have worked with people who I've later heard were fired because of, you know, harassment issues um, to PAs and other crew members. So I've, I've seen it. Can I ask, Daniel, would the people, just as just generally speaking, or the people who are abusive, how high up the ladder are they? Are you talking about, like, studio types? Are you talking about, like, people... A, a notch or two higher on the pecking chain than than a PA. Like what? Just generally speaking, do you feel like it was across the board or, or? the the few? That's a that's a good question, and it's 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 definitely something to address. The few instances that I saw, they were people who had been in the industry a long time and were pretty high up on the chain, and most people didn't expect or didn't know what was going on because they you know they thought oh that's. That's Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown. What he's been doing this for eighty years. Bobby Brown. What are you talking about? He's the whole time he's been lambasting PAs off on the side, and you know it would eventually come out, and you know the people who were were the ones getting reamed would be kind of a little happy. I mean, I never want anyone to. I try to be nice. I don't want anyone to lose their job, or I just wish people would be a little nicer sometimes and remember that we're not we're not you know necessarily saving lives every day. We don't need to be destroying one another <laughs> to get it done yeah i was when i was fired I, the meanest people to me were the costume designers who i was like helping out and also the production coordinator she she just like tore me apart and like was complaining about me in front of in front of me to other people <laughs> um, it was just like <laughs> humiliating um but anyway oh, i so, shouldn't laugh but it's it's a little funny to i'm me. surprised yeah, you say no, costumes no. usually costumes and wardrobe in my experience are some of the nicest people yeah i think kind of the takeaway is more that it can be anyone it's it, just it can yeah it can 100 yeah. well so what are what are some of the things you wish they taught in school that they didn't the whole point of that chapter uh is is I would get asked by people when i you know when i'd go back to my alma mater macaulay honors college at brooklyn college i would 
tell people, oh, I'm working as a production assistant. Everybody would say, what what are things that I should be doing? And I would constantly say, and I regret not doing it, taking an accounting class or some kind of, you know, simple, this is, this could really apply to any industry. It's not just us, but I, I'm sure you both know, and everybody who's listening knows you have to be able to be an, you know, a freelancer and uh, keep track of your own finances. You, you got to learn about those tax write-offs. You have to be able to budget. You have to know that you're always going to be selling yourself. And it's, it's, you get told uh, you'll be moving from job to job, but I didn't know and all the people that I went to school with didn't know what exactly that meant until you you really see, oh, in one week, in one five-day work week or six sometimes, uh, I could be working on a different set with totally different people every single one of those days. Right. And they all pay you in different ways. Here you're on payroll. Here you have to fill out this form. Like, some are <laughs> tax-free cash. Some are, yeah, it's, it's every different I mean, different the paperwork, angle. right? It's like my first few times when someone's like, yeah, fill out these 20 sheets. And I'm like, for what? They're like, well, do you want to get paid? I'm like, yeah, but why do it? Can you just <laughs> give me a check? Um, it like boggles my mind. require this much? I saw the grip department, like they would have like the key grip would like fill out all half the forms for the people and they would spend like an hour <laughs> doing paperwork. It was nuts. Pretty bonkers. And I remember the first day I was like gigging on something and like a, my, I think it was my DP, like just had his passport with him and like, to make things super streamlined. And I was like, oh, right. Like you do see the difference between people who, like you're saying, Daniel, have to deal with like, uh, you know, a thousand different ways of getting paid versus I feel like, you know, coming from the corporate world, you know, you just got a paycheck. You know what I mean? Like, and so, and and, and more importantly, I think to your, the larger point you're making, Daniel, is like my parents, and I assume most people's parents, were employed by one employer for the majority of their time, you know? And so you don't have it modeled for you. You don't understand how gig workers work yet. Gig workers is the classification there. And I, I during the pandemic, I heard there was a whole IRS site that I didn't even know existed uh, for gig workers. And, you know, everybody in the industry, as I'm sure most of the listeners of your podcast knows, everybody from top to bottom, unless you're a studio executive, you know, home home base is you know the assistant of, a, of an executive and you have a full-time salaried position outside of those kinds of jobs it is all from you know paycheck to paycheck even if you're directing or, or writing it you know you go project project basis yeah even the people that make like the big bucks they're like yeah i got paid a million dollars you know and i bought a house two um, years ago i bought yeah. half a house and now <laughs> I, I owe a million dollars and i have no jobs coming up so i'm screwed yeah the, the main advantage of being a director is just that you uh you you get paid in a lump sum typically so you're not dealing with like time cards and stuff you have one contract instead of like you know a pile of paperwork most of the time yeah well this is really boring topic so i'll make it quick but I didn't realize that I'm in court. I have like an S corp or whatever. I'm incorporated. And so, you know, when you get paid, instead of putting you on payroll, they do like treat you like a loan out, right? They, you're like an independent contractor. I didn't realize that not everyone can do that. This producer I worked with was like, oh yeah, if like a electrician or grip was like, hey, pay my loan out or my S corp, we would say no. Like it's not everyone gets that. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone gets that. And also like the rules are very, they're shifting because of a handful of laws that are going into effect in California. So like when I did the the feature at the beginning of 2020, where I was a producer and we were paying everybody 
you know, like, or that, that was my responsibility. We did it through a payroll company so that we knew that everyone was getting a W-2 rather than traditionally you used to give everybody 1099s where they're quote unquote independent contractors. But because California, because of gig workers, because of Uber and things like that, a lot of those laws have kind of gotten a little wonky. And so as a extra layer of protection, both for ourselves and also for the people working for us, we kind of went through a payroll company. But um, depending on who's doing your accounting and how your corporation is set up, I think it can get a little tricky. So you really have to dot your I's and cross your T's. Back to Daniel's point about like <laughs> knowing how to be an accountant or at least be conversant with one is a, a surprisingly big part of the job. Yeah, there's all sorts of, sorry, there's all sorts of other things in this chapter that are just tickling my interest. Uh, passive, you have a section called passive income on set. What is that? You bring yeah. a bunch of candy bars and sell them to the. <laughs> no, that the there's, crew? that's, that's some of the things I started doing when I, you know, when I needed to fill days uh, and I didn't have, you know, you're trading Bitcoin is what you're saying, Daniel. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. into crypto. <laughs> I would be selling cryptocurrencies. That happened to me in an Uber once on the way in one morning. Somebody was trying to sell me a crypto or a, a Bitcoin. I didn't I even did know have, how I that a, would happen. I have a, I had a crew that was, they were, for whatever reason, they were all into like cryptocurrency. Yeah. It was all very the camera department there. Yeah, yeah. Jess Dunlap, the DP we worked with, he's always like talking about. It. He's like, oh man, this one's up, Warren. You got to get in on this. And they all know the one that's going to be the winner. This stock right here, <laughs> I, I know a guy, I know a woman, right. you know, somebody knows someone. Yeah, but tell tell us, Daniel, what do you mean by uh, passive income on set? Yeah, honestly, you're not wrong. I mentioned the app Robinhood, which I found out about pretty early on in its life cycle when I was when I was younger. You know, as 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 a PA in the beginning, and there's there's an arc that follows the whole book, which I'll, uh, you know, I'll very quickly say I kind of use my own experience as a basis for the chapters to carry through from one to the next. And I am not the world's best PA. I don't claim to be. There were PAs who rocked, you know, were rock stars. They were way, way more awesome than I was, and they knew a lot more and they could do a lot more. But what I learned early on was that I started finding ways to focus on things I could do on set that would help earn a little extra stream of income somewhere. So I wouldn't just be making at the time, I think I started, I think the minimum wage in New York City, where I was doing a bulk of the bulk of the work was eleven fifty or twelve dollars an hour. And to to get to bulk up a little bit and say, okay, if I'm gonna work sixty hours this week, that's not too bad, but it would be nice to have a little bit extra. I started looking into trading ETFs on on Robinhood when I have a few seconds to step away. I started finding out ways that I could not be distracted by my cell phone, but if I know I'm gonna have, you know, if the crew's gonna have a lunch break and I'm gonna be fire watching some equipment I would step off to the side and you know keep an eye on the equipment, but I'd be texting a few people saying, hey, I'm going to be available on Tuesday and Wednesday. Do you have anything or do you know of anyone who's looking? Feel free to let me know. Those kinds of things, staying active while you're on the job site. I didn't know it was acceptable for a while. And then I found out, no, I, I kind of should be doing this. Can you tell us um, what fire watching is just for people that don't know? Yeah. if you're That's, that's one of those terms that's kind of set up to 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 get you if you don't know uh, if if when the crew goes to lunch or uh, you know if there's a situation where the crew needs to step away for a location scout or something uh, and you have equipment on a location a PA usually will be designated to fire watch that equipment preventing any fires and putting them out if they occur if somebody walks along and says wow this is a nice camera and starts to try to pick it up the PA is there to say no 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 you know don't touch that if it escalates that's a different story but you try to put the fires out if you can. Um, that's, it's one of those jobs. That's one of the, like the depressing PA jobs where it's like one of the most important jobs, but 
by far the most boring. Yeah, you're just like, oh, like what am I doing? I'm not learning anything. Like I thought, thought those assholes on that podcast told me that I'd be able to observe. All I'm observing is the back of a truck. Um, I will say though, uh, again on the feature, oftentimes we were like shorthanded on PAs in particular, and so uh, I often, as producer, would be like, "Oh, I'll go Firewatch because I can like multitask a ton," and I wanted that like half hour <laughs> shift of just like decompressing and thinking about the next day and all of that stuff. So it does kind of come full circle. Where like all of a sudden you're kind of vying for a little peace and quiet for a second. I bet there's like a cool invention you could come up with, like some sort of like electrical wire that you put on the perimeter of like your all your gear that like you know if you touch it, whatever, like a motion electrocutes you or calls something on. goes off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Orin, why don't you invent that and then put it on your next set and then let me know how it goes. Okay. I will. <laughs> um, okay. A couple more things. To vacation or not to vacation. That's a good one. Ooh, yeah, that is good. This whole chapter, too, I tried to keep it as not as unboring as possible because a lot of the accounting stuff is horribly boring, but it's, you know, like you guys have said, you need to know it. But the vacation one, I, you know, in the beginning, people would keep telling me, you don't get to take days off. You just got to keep working. You got to, you're a PA, you know, you need to meet people. If somebody needs you, you're available. You take the job. And there's something to be said about that when you're starting out. I started out that way, but there comes a point where if you want to take a day off and maybe you've been working on five different sets, you know, for a week, which, which happened to me, I had three weeks in a row or in a row rather, where every day during those three weeks, it was a different set. People on those sets don't know or may not know that you're working elsewhere full time. You know, if you say, oh, I really got to take tomorrow off to relax, I've been, you know, laughed at before and scoffed at. And in the, when I would say that earlier on, they'd say, what are you talking about? You were here for a day and you already got to take a day off, please. And that that situation is is something that you kind of need to learn how to uh, how to tread carefully when you're talking about taking time off. Do you think if somebody calls you to PA and you say no that they'll call you back again. Like, is it, I feel like when I first was first starting in the industry, there was a fear of saying no, I would just say yes to everything because I was afraid once I turned something down, they would never call me again, which is why I constantly worked on set while I was sick. Yeah. <laughs> Fevers thrown up, everything. I never wanted to put anyone at yeah, risk. Or in his patient zero. <laughs> I tried. I tried to balance if I was sick and not not kill myself. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to act like a, a, a prima donna or anything and say I would find excuses to not work. But so let me ask, though, Daniel, because certainly, you know, like I think everybody needs a little bit of time to rest. And also I can understand if someone doesn't know your context, if you're saying, oh, I've worked a day and I need a day off. You know, people could be flippant about that. What did you learn to rephrase it as? Like, how did you kind of craft that story? Do you just say like, oh, you know, I'm I'm actually uh, I'm booked on something else tomorrow or like what what was your go to line to kind of set aside a day for yourself? That's exactly it. What you just said. I'm already booked. You know, yeah, that's something yeah, that it's a, it's an early phrase that you learn in the beginning. But if you if you need to take a day, you never want to say oh, I'm going to be on vacation that day. I'm going to be out of town, even if you are. Again, this is so common for us, but a lot of people when they were starting out, I certainly didn't know. I'm already booked that day. I'd love to work with you next time, though. It does two things. It gives you the time you need, and it lets the other person know that you're in demand. Uh, and then they will you know, say, I've got to be on the ball about getting this person because, hey, other people are hiring that person, even if they're not really. Yeah. That's for actors, too. I, my wife is always like, ah, I'm shooting this thing, but I have this audition. I'm like, just tell them you're shooting something. They'll 
they that will make them want to audition you even more. And if you don't know something, saying no, uh, you never want to say no. You say, I'll find out. From day one, my, one of the first questions I was asked when I started working as an office PA on a major union production, do you know how to collate scripts? I had no idea what collating was at the time. And I said, uh, I'm a fast learner. If you show me once, you'll never have to show me again. And I meant it. And I learned it that day. And, you know, ever since then, I've been collating scripts for fun on the weekends. Was that the best advice you ever got? No, that was not the best advice I ever got. The best advice I ever got was from a, a wonderful actor, Leon Rippey. And he told a story about a production assistant who showed up to work on time every time. And one day he overslept and uh, he got there late. And apparently the ADs just, you know, reamed him a new one, so to speak, and, and were not very forgiving at all. Uh, and this PA was so upset that apparently left left the business and never worked another day, decided to switch industries because of how badly he was verbally abused. So the best advice I ever got was grow a thick skin from day one, grow a thick skin and just understand that there's people out there who are going to yell. And it's it's a high stress, high energy job from writer's rooms uh, to post-production suites to production on set. A lot of people are really stressed out and uh, they're just looking for an excuse to take it out on someone. So just grow a thick skin. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm hoping, I feel like in the last few years in particular, people have become more aware of those problems. And so I hope, I feel like in the studio world, you hear more and more about them trying to build in fail safes or ways to report that sort of behavior. You know, like I agree with you, Daniel. I think I don't want to sugarcoat anything. Sometimes people can get out of line, but I hope that we're learning how to fix those problems rather than accommodate assholes, I guess is what I'm getting at. But yeah, so, you know, hopefully uh, I think, you know, the other thing is like having good superiors, like having you know, there's a very clear pecking order for for every single department. So if you are having an issue with somebody where they're they've crossed a line, look, being reprimanded, being disciplined, that stuff is part of the job. But also, like, no one deserves to be screamed at. You know, knowing who you can talk to, knowing who you can confide in, it's it's you you make friends as you go. And I also will very quickly add that when I did the first couple of drafts of my book, you know. Earlier on, I would share it with my close confidants and my screenwriting friends and say, what do you think? People I know who started out as PAs and a lot of them would, would go straight to, oh, I hate all this. I hate all that. You're right. This is just such a terrible position. And there would be a lot of angst and anger and pe people who didn't know about the industry would read it and say, wow, it sounds like a horrible job. Why would anyone want to do this? And I realized that I was probably instilling a lot of the negative experiences I had and letting that kind of dominate the story. But it's it's I wouldn't say it's the majority of experiences. They're some of the ones that stick with you the most because they're, you know, so aggressively hurtful to your 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 mental capacity and your spirit. And you remember them, but it's not the the primary thing that is happening to you, if that makes sense. Right. Well, just in that spirit of positivity, why don't we give our listeners that want to be PAs a freebie and tell them what collating a script means. So collating a script, if you're ever, ever asked how to collate a script, it's uh, there's going to be different versions of scripts as you go. If you're working on a TV show, for example, one episode could have, usually it's a color-coded system. So you'll start with a white script and then there'd be blue pages and yellow pages, and then maybe a red script, which would be in the, the blue and the yellow pages are only a few pages, dialogue changed. A red script would be the third edition of changes they made. It was the full script. Collating is taking all the latest and greatest pages individually and combining them with the, the previous drafts pages. So basically updating a script 
page by page or collating. Uh, you're merging together multiple drafts of a script to have one copy that is all the most recent pages. And, and just to clarify, you literally mean that blue pages are printed on blue paper. That's correct. Red pages, you know, it's like it's so like when you look at a script, it can be like a, a little rainbow. And it's just so that you're not printing out the entirety of, you know, a hundred page script over and over again every time somebody, you know, tweaks one little thing. Exactly. You don't want to have to reprint. You know, there were many places I worked at that would. And at recent times, especially during the pandemic, the sets that I've been on, you know, they're trying to be good about printing out even any paper at all. But there are still many instances where people prefer paper, people want paper, actors need paper. Uh, so it's this is something that's still being done even during these these trying times for firsthand experience. Let, let me ask, actually, because I don't really know, like, how do you physically collate a script? Are you literally tearing the old pages out and then putting in the new colorful pages? The way that I learned to do it, that I was trained by that first coordinator who asked me, we had our scripts that were three hole punched and had two brads in them. And I would sit down, I would remove the brads, which I didn't know what that term meant, Brad. I thought it was, you know, I'm, I'm thinking there's some guy named Brad who's going to come in the room and help me. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't the case. There's well, what they call so the, good at the fasteners. <laughs> I had no clue. I yeah, really yeah, had no, no clue. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so Brad's are the little, the copper fasteners, basically, that you thread through a, a script to, to bind it, basically. Right, right. And then you would remove those, and I would go page by page. Say I had the blue pages, I would see pages 2 and 96 have changed. And then I, if it's a feature, I guess, and I would go and I would remove the old page 2 and the old page 96, slip in the new colored pages. So you just, you do it by hand. Like it's, exactly. It's just, oh, yeah. I mean, I and, guess yeah. and there is like a digital equivalent to the colors, right? In final draft, uh, it will mark you. You do select which draft you're working on, and so you can see, even in the digital copy, if you're working with red pages or blue pages. Or it's very accommodating for you know people who are used to the the page colors, and the the digital solution is definitely there. It's just a question of who's adopted it and who's comfortable working with the the you know having an iPad in their back pocket or on their shoulder instead of pulling out the script that's been freshly collated but yeah but if you're a filmmaker that's never really done use the color system and you are changing your script as you're shooting your indie film in the middle <laughs> of uh, sioux city iowa our favorite shout out place then uh yeah check out the the color draft feature and final draft it's pretty it's pretty useful if you're changing your script as you're going well, we won't get through your whole book, but I'd love to ask about the name of the next chapter because it's like totally the opposite of what I thought. It's all about who you don't know. Yes. I'll I'll be quick for the remaining chapters. I'll no, say No, no, you know, we know I think if we get through half of them it's great and then everyone will know that there's so much yeah. treasure. I think the thing the takeaway is that like there's a lot of things that if you want to be a PA, there's a lot of things to know and learn and to kind of dig in on. And it sounds like this book is a really good resource for that. So, And just production in general. I mean, it doesn't seem like all of this stuff is, you know, a lot of this stuff is PA specific. But like you're saying about being an accountant, about, you know, telling people like, uh, I don't know how, but teach me and I promise you I'll do a great job. Like that has, that applies to every single position. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, every department. So and even you know, we were joking about the coalition stuff. Like that is something that oftentimes a writer's assistant will do too. So like, oh yeah, that's sure. a thing, or a script coordinator, or you know, that's the beauty of being a PA, right? Is that like there's a lot of different skills from all of the different departments that you kind of get to acquire and find a foundation in before you decide what path you want to take. Yeah, I think people when I started out and some people who may not be familiar with the larger productions where it's not an independent film and there's only one production assistant on the entire thing. If there's even one, there's a PA for a construction department. There's the office and the set that everybody knows about, but there might be a a wardrobe PA. There might be the writer's PAs. I mean, across the board, and I've had the good graces and the good luck, I believe, to work as one of every PA, except writer's PA was the only PA form that I never actually had. uh, I would assist the writer's PAs, and I had a lot of writer's PA's friends who kind of helped me piece together this book and gave me a lot of tidbits of what it was like working in a writer's room, um, which I know is one of the one of the regular topics here that I've been hearing recently. But there's yeah, a lot and, to be said. I think being writer's PA is the hardest job and or hardest job to get in Hollywood. Yeah, it's competitive. Genuinely, and I, I think so. is that is PA usually the only non-union job in a department? As far as I know, it, it when I it's funny when I started at least here in New York City, the locations department uh, or rather the locations assistants were non-union. But then somewhere along the line, I think they, they joined another union. And now, as far as I know, the PAs on most of the, the big shows and the big features, they are the last non-union position with uh, craft services in some cases. Right. So they're kind of like the entryway. If you want to work in camera, if you want to work in in art, if you want to work in wardrobe costumes, if you can get a PA job, that's kind of like your funnel into that department, which is awesome. And you don't need to be in the union. Exactly. Whichever world you want to work in and it it's it being all about who you don't know kind of flips on your head. I, I felt myself in the beginning, I don't know anyone because I didn't know anyone. And I thought that was really defeating because then I would I feel down and I would beat myself up and I'd say, how am I going to get on a set? How am I going to one day direct a movie? I don't, I don't know where to go. I don't have anyone to call. As I went along, I kind of started telling myself, it's all about who you don't know because you never know where the next conversation is going to lead. Like we said earlier on Craigslist, and I'm, you know, I'm sure everyone here has experienced it. You meet someone who it's a quick conversation, but they'll remember your name because of some funny joke you told or some project you were working on that piqued their interest. And that conversation might come back and pay itself off in dividends where they say, I remember that project. I want to talk to you more about that. They save your number, your email, or you reach out to them at a later date and they say, I remember you. Now I've got a job for you. If you go in thinking it's always about who I don't know, even if you're a director or an actor or you know, very um, super high successful Hollywood, you're always meeting new people. You're always growing that Rolodex. I like to think of things that way. Cool. Yeah. 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 I think that's exactly right. Uh, well, chapter four, I think is pretty, is pretty awesome too. First steps. I mean, that's like, that's one of the things that on this podcast we try to dig into to the most. Cause a lot of people will be like, yeah, you know, my first job was writer's PA on modern family. And then I got into, and you're like, yeah, and then but, I got an episode and now, uh, but all we care about is how you went from not knowing anyone to modern family. Like we don't care what happened afterwards. We, we know how that works. So you have a whole chapter about this first steps. I like this, that uh, you have a kind of subheading called experience only no pay. <laughs> That's uh, the Craigslist days right there. Sure. Yeah. And are you, yeah, are you advocating for that, that people should take those jobs? Uh, I don't necessarily advocate for it. I think that there's a level that when you start out, when if you're someone like me or if you're in a city where I recognize that not everybody who is in this, who joins the industry comes from New York or LA or Georgia or a place where there's tons of productions around, sometimes all you have is that one unpaid 
way to get your feet wet. I think that in that kind of situation uh, or when you don't know anyone, you should take anything you can get without being you know, abused or asked to do something you're uncomfortable with. You learn, you grow, you meet new people, and that will only help you in the long run. So I think there's a point at which you should do experience only no pay. And then so the next section is called saying no. So is that kind of uh, about when you stop doing that? That's more about finding the eloquent way to to tell people uh, to to not really say no, but say no to find a way to uh, to put yourself in a position where you you have to say no. I mean, you can't say yes to everybody. You're gonna as a as a production assistant on set. I was asked things everywhere I walked, every crew member, and it was it wasn't just me, it was all the PAs. They'd throw every question under the sun at us, and you have to be able to triage. You have to be able to understand which which, you know, requires the most attention. And a lot of this comes through osmosis. That's what happened for me. But you find eloquent ways to to turn people down and say, I'll get back to you. I haven't forgotten about you. Can't do that right now. That's what saying no kind of gets into. Yeah. For me it was actually like a big part of my growth as a person just working in this industry was like learning to say no. I used to literally like have actor friends. I was friends with a lot of actors when I first moved to LA. They're just like my roommates were actors and they would just always ask me to shoot scenes for their reels and edit their reels and do all this stuff. And it's like a lot of work. I was like the DP, the director, the editor, (laughs) everything. Um, I was lighting everything. And then I would just get so stressed out about all this stuff and not, you know, getting paid for it. And one of my actor friends was like, I was expressing this to him. He's like, why don't you just say no? I was like, what? Like, I was like, I don't know. I guess I just feel mean. He's like, no, it's not mean. <laughs> like, just say no um, after you finish editing my reel. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, like, I think sometimes people don't know, like actors, that your actor roommates don't know how hard it is to do the things that you're doing the same way that, like, people on set sometimes don't know that Daniel you know, that the EP asked Daniel to go do something or whatever, you know, like there's a hierarchy. And so um, if you're on a mission and you're doing something and they said that they need it in five minutes or whatever, and if you say yes, you're actually hurting yourself and also both of the requesters, you know, that's the thing that's tricky. That's very true. There's a ripple effect that, that you don't, you may unknowingly cause multiple problems to happen by thinking that you're, oh, I'm going to be helping out two people. Sometimes you need to be able to, you know, know which comes first and also you know the ultimate ramification of all of this you know the pa is part of a large machine but if certain parts get gummed up then you end up going into overtime you end up staying longer everyone gets tired you know like it does actually have ramifications that can be a bummer whether it's like not seeing your family or being sleep deprived or you know things becoming unsafe or whatever like that that's overly dramatic you know most of the time uh, you know any one task isn't going to cause this huge ripple effect but you know uh, they do add up well on that note i was thought maybe we can skip to chapter 12 called who needs sleep because i know you put an entire chapter about sleep mm-hmm. that's also the name of a documentary on the same subject yes. actually yeah haskell oh, really? wexler mm-hmm. made this beautiful yeah, yeah I'm, I'm so glad you know it it's it's not a lot of people know that one if you haven't seen it or and it's fantastic and it's on vimeo for free i think i put it I up can't, there. i can't make it through oh no. i just keep passing out no, it's great. That one was uh, it was um, uh, Brett on on Pleasantville, the camera operator who died after a uh, you know a, a, what was it a nineteen hour day, and it, you know it was a horrible story. That was something that motivated a lot of the industry, the twelve on twelve off movement in the early two thousands. Um, 
that chapter is really dedicated to the physical. But what you said earlier, Matt, about, you know, sometimes you take in all those little tasks and you don't realize where it might lead. This is one dramatic example, but I, I did write about it because I thought it was important. There was a day where I took all those jobs and I made sure I did everything I could. And so did all the other PAs. We were all working our butts off on the show. But I, I reached a point where on my way home, I started falling asleep at the road, uh, you know, at the wheel rather, as I was driving home from a set in Brooklyn, coming back to Queens, which was about a 45 minute drive for me. And I was on the highway and I was just having these micro sleeps. I, I later learned they're called where I'm having this in and out. And there was a moment where what woke me up was the rumbling of my car, you know, against the guardrail and sparks shooting up from the metal on metal. It was only about a second, but that shook me so much that I kind of said at that day, I, I do, I want to do so much more than being a PA. And I, I really would like to, to like so many other people, I have stories to tell. I have things I'd love to write and things I'd love to direct. And uh, I don't think it's worth killing myself as a PA and never reaching that point, uh, you know, to, 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 to say yes to everybody. You have to be able to say no and balance out your physical health. Yeah, the sleep thing is real. I, I had worked on a, actually a USC thesis, graduate thesis film, and our first AC didn't show up the second day. And he had been in like, he fell asleep at the wheel and he was in the hospital. Like, I mean, he, you know, I think he had made a full recovery, but he never came back to set because he just fell asleep. And it's, you know, especially when you're like a grip or an electrician, you're picking up like a 120 pound light, like on a 12 step ladder, you're like, and you're exhausted, you know, like it gets super dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's serious stuff for sure. And, you know, film sets are naturally you know, fraught with risk, you know, like even when things, when everything's going right, there's still a level of risk. That's the reason why actually uh, in Los Angeles, everyone's being urged to shut down production because our uh, hospitals have are at zero capacity right now because of COVID. And so if somebody's, you know, trips and like twists their ankle, that person can't get the care that they need. And you kind of have to assume that that's going to happen at some point on some set. And so it feels irresponsible to allow that sort of uh, work to be happening. Yeah, that's that's an important thing to mention. Even nowadays, being tired can lead you to maybe you're going to forget that you're not supposed to touch your face. And there's a situation where you might accidentally get really sick because you were so tired. And if you just had a little time to to sleep and recover physically and, you know, clean up and take care of yourself, that wouldn't have happened. So it is important. People people forget sometimes. Sure. Heavy stuff. Well, well, so on on that note, actually, you know, I thought that we could have a, a tiny conversation about the overall benefits of being a PA and maybe when it's time to no longer be one, you know, because I think that we've all met a person or two who, you know, moves out to Los Angeles or New York or Georgia or wherever with the stars in their eyes and the dreams of becoming a, a big fancy filmmaker and somewhere along the way they become the best PA you've ever met, but they are so good that they get trapped in that gig. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's a, I think there's a, a threshold where all of a sudden that job doesn't pay off in terms of experience you know, you've got it dialed in, but you can kind of maybe miss your opportunity to level up in some way or, or something like that. So, you know, I think that it's worth talking about a little bit. Yeah, you're not you're not wrong there. I think, you know, in regard to a situation where 
And this is something that I ran into as a PA where you're working so hard and you're doing a great job. You know, you believe you're doing a great job and people tell you you're doing a great job and you're just so fo laser focused on, on being the best PA in the world. But then you kind of forget why you started being a PA in the first place. Not many people become PAs to stay PAs forever. Uh, I met two, two people. Yeah, I've, I've met one. I've met one. And he was, oh, boy, he was great. He was so good. They're usually the best and they're usually the most calm too. They're also the most, no, no disrespect, but physically aged uh, people. You can see that they're, they're, they're the, you know, they look the oldest, but they're actually only 25 or, or something like, crazy. Bro, you've been living hard. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm a full-time PA. Yeah. Walked 627 miles in these shoes. <laughs> it is fun to like, if you have a Fitbit or something to see how many steps you get on set. That's a, it's no joke for sure. I was I was in the top one percent of uh, active people, active walkers in New York City, all of New York City, one week, according to my Google Fit statistics. <laughs> I was very, very good. proud. In a city of walkers, you know, people are walking exactly. everywhere. That's pretty darn good, Daniel. Well done, buddy. Millions of people. I'm, yeah. I'm very proud of that one. <laughs> yeah, you're walking here. Yeah. Well, what was to Matt's question? What are some of the benefits of being a, a PA? In my experience. There's, and a lot of people's experience, there's situations that you get exposed to that you wouldn't be exposed to through any other position. If you went right in to working on independent productions or starting at a rank, for example, I know some very great DGA ADs who started working as ADs, at, you know, on independent and just skip PAing altogether and they gave themselves that level of responsibility. Uh, they missed some of the the fun that can be had as a PA where you don't have to think everything is on your shoulders. You know, as an AD, assistant directors are very much in tune with, with the budgets and the schedules, uh, specifically the schedule. And if we're not going to make our day, they start getting really nervous and antsy. And, you know, some of them do, some of them don't. But as a PA, you're there to support the assistant directors. You're in the assistant director department in, in most places. But you have a level of, I can I can breathe a little bit. And step back and have some fun. And there's this great actor like Leon Rippey, for example. I got, I, he's just one of many, but I got to chat with him on a few occasions. Brian Dennehy, you know, before he passed away, I had conversations about acting as, you know, as a film performer that I got from his perspective that I believe and I hope will inform me better when I reach the point where I'm directing, you know, my first feature film. Uh, little lessons that I learned that I was able to pause and talk to a performer or, veteran crew member because I didn't have to worry about running nonstop high octane to make sure we make our day because it's all on my shoulders. Hopefully that makes sense. That's that's one of the good things. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think the, the opportunity, like we've been talking about, to observe and to engage and to kind of dabble, you know, I think is is pretty great. Yeah. And you gave Brian Denny some notes too, right? Some acting notes. <laughs> I gave him a few. I told him that, you know, he's got to play it a little bit more like he did in First Blood. Just a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, well, so speaking of that, like kind of, you know, you mentioned directing a feature, doing the other thing, kind of like learning all these things. What's your, you're a filmmaker also. What's your, where are you now? What, like, how did this form you as a filmmaker today? This is a very valid question. I uh, I am very much in the boat of people who likes to think, you can make it through this life and this industry specifically without being one thing. I know that everybody in this room does multiple things. Nobody just wears one hat. And I feel for a while, 
the way the industry was based on stories that I heard where if you join this union and you do this job, that's what you do. And you don't really step out of that. Uh, and people do still do that. You know, if you could be a fantastic assistant editor and remain an assistant editor, or you could be a fantastic costumer and stay that. Um, but I like to, I've always liked to move around laterally. So when I reached a point in my PA career, and there were a few things that influenced my decision, but I reached a point where I didn't think I learned everything. I'll never learn anything. I don't think anyone will reach that point, but I learned what I needed to learn. Uh, I wanted to take next steps. So I started working as a camera operator. I found an opportunity to work for uh, for Amazon and a few other local local uh, non-union production arms of some major companies here in New York City because I didn't join the union at, at that point. Um, and I started learning new skills. You know, as a camera operator, I did some sound mixing. Uh, I did some some non-union crew member work, and I was saying these are skills that now I learned how to work with some of the biggest uh, and you know most powerful talents by being on those big union signatory jobs. Now I'm working on slightly smaller things, but I'm buffing up those technical skills that I was really practicing back in college and when I was making movies in my backyard as a kid. Now I'm kind of visiting that on a new level. And in recent times during the, the pandemic, after I finished writing the book, I've been trying to uh, combine all of that and say, I got the people skills as a PA, uh, which I think is the best the best thing that you can get as a PA is good communication and people skills that you can only polish what you already have as a PA, but I'm combining that with the technical that I've gotten. Uh, and I'm starting to work more on developing my YouTube channel. I have plans for 2021, uh, some of the the films that I shoot with friends and, and sending those on the festival circuits, which I'm learning a lot about through Just Shoot It, of course, yeah, and uh, preparing my first feature. Oh yeah, of course, there's there's a lot of great lessons out here that I've been listening to. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to combine it all. Uh, cool. Let me ask you a random question that I just thought of. When you're PAing on something, how often do you end up watching the thing that you PA'd on? There was one jokester teamster who once said to me, we're so busy making television that we never have time to watch it. And I kind of adopted that policy of more by choice, less by not being able to do it. But a lot of the jobs I worked on, I wouldn't watch them because I didn't want to revisit <laughs> some of the <laughs> negative experiences that I had on sets. They happen everywhere. Some are worse than others, but I, I don't watch much of what I worked on as a PA now. It's funny. It is hard to fathom. I remember hearing those stories when I was younger. I was like, what do you mean you don't watch the thing you worked on? Like, that's the whole point. And like, you know, it's uh, look, you were there, you know? <laughs> Like you've been working on it. It's it's like you watched that show in slow motion. You know, every two minutes was 12 hours of your life. I'm trying to think of, you know, when I, I used to dolly grip a lot and I boom opt and I've done a lot of various positions. I PA'd a little. And I'm trying to think of how what things I watched and what I didn't because just zooming out for a second, thinking of yourself as a filmmaker and saying like, okay, I'm on set. I get to be next to Brian Denny and I get to talk to him about a performance and I get to see where they put the cameras, see how they move the dolly and see, you know, where the lights are. And I want to see if this, how this shot looks. And, you know, a lot of times on set, you can see on the monitor, you, you get a feeling for the performance and the cinematography, but you can't know if the story and the thing you're working on actually works is good unless you watch the finished product, you know, with the music and the sound effects and the editing. And I, I guess I... I probably should have watched more because like I remember when I was dolly gripping, like all I really cared about was like what this shot looked like. I never really thought like, oh, this dolly move is really telling this story because this character is like, you know, 
we're following them into a new world. And I kind of, you know, regret not spending more time like seeing my project all the way to the end because that's, I think, like would be like the best learning experience, right? Watch what you work on, even if you know it's bad. And believe me, like most of the stuff I think I worked on, like the Craigslist stuff, like I knew it was bad, like on set, like the shots didn't even look good, let alone like the story. Um, uh, you know, I, I'll I'll kind of double down on that, but I think that there is a thing that you can do that maybe makes life a little easier in case you are working on something that you don't know when it's going to be really, if you're on a short or whatever, you, you know, it's not really under your control. Maybe you get an email, maybe you see on Facebook that it's been posted or something, but probably not. But you can read the script and then you're at least informed with what it is you're shooting in the first place. And it, you know, a, a similar to what I was saying before about when you, I was younger, the idea of uh, crewing on something and having not read the screenplay sounded insane to me as well. But that's true most of the time. Most people haven't read the screenplay. Oh, yeah. Many of the additional, not only additional PAs, but additional crew members, you know, regular union crew members, they just pop in on a day to day basis and they have no idea what's going on. They just do what they're told. Dude, I work on we work on commercials where there's literally half a page scripts and people don't read them like that's crazy no that's what, what you're like, it, it takes you longer to not read this script than it does to read it yeah at that point it's so easy to just look down i mean come on now there, there's when it's when it's a script for a tv show or a feature it's a different world yeah yeah but but like i said i think it does help you like you do see like oh okay like i'm the camera moves in this way and i know that i'm supposed to feel this way about it and you know you can infer some of that stuff but having right. the big connection i think is really helpful yeah yeah, that is a good thing. I, and I do think, especially in the commercial world, we've kind of been entrenched in recently, like the producers never really care if the crew has read the script. And I think it would be nice, actually, when they send the call sheet to also send the script, you know, the storyboards to the whole crew and say like, hey, by the way, this is what we're shooting. Because I don't know, Matt, if it's happened to you, but I've worked on things where at the end of the day, you know, the gaffer's like, oh, this is pretty cool. I get it now. Oh, so this is it. And I'm like... You're yeah. like, yeah, but you were pitching ideas. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's the benefit of working yeah. on some some slightly smaller projects too, or some of those mega productions that I'll admit I never worked on in, you know, in Avengers or something sure. on that yeah, level. Yeah, they wouldn't allow you to read the Exactly. I, I've yeah. I've worked on a Marvel production or two before, and th- that it, just as an example, that's the type of production where things are so redacted and the pages are so, you know, carefully selected and handed out that they will not, like you just said, they will not let you read it as a PA. There's only a select few people who are allowed to even know what's going on, which I thought was counterintuitive, like, like you guys are saying, you know, and going in, I like to know even as a PA, what, you know, what's the goal here? If, if, I, if I'm just going to be standing on a street corner and locking it up preventing people from walking into the shot that's fine i can do that but if i'm going to be involved you know in helping you make the scene at all it is good to know what's going on yeah at least a little more enriching um but yeah no i think to your point like there are a lot of uh productions even things less secretive than say a, a marvel movie where like you know orin and i experience it firsthand you know, when our wives are auditioning for a TV show or something, half the time the script doesn't make sense because they've changed the character names and the jokes even to yeah. the point where it's like, oh. That's why, that, that's why nothing my wife does is funny. Like, <laughs> they change the jokes. Yeah. It's not your fault, babe. So it's fine. Just kidding. She's hilarious. It's the script. She's very funny. Yeah. Uh, you worked on The Tick. That's cool. 
That was a fun one. Yeah. Oh, wait, did you really? Oh, that's excellent, man. The Ben Edlund, the Amazon version, right? Yes. Uh, that one, I remember seeing Peter Sarafinowitz on set for the first time. I think I pronounced his last name correctly there. Yeah, he, he and that was a very interesting job because of the suits and, you know, the, the prosthetics that they had on people. Yeah, I was there for about a week. That was a great show. Awesome. Well, Daniel, remind us again how people can find the book and buy it and all that stuff. If you're interested, the book cost fifteen ninety nine. Uh, Ooh, a bargain. Some, 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 uh, my idea was a dollar per chapter. That's kind of what I, th- I said. I think I've done enough work that it should be $1 per chapter. There's 16 chapters in the book. Um, there's, there's some booksellers that sell it for less. Uh, somehow on eBay, it's already used. I don't know how that <laughs> happened, but hey, there it is. So look around and you'll find and a bargain. there's a Kindle version too, right? 10 bucks. Yes. Yes. The ebook version is only 10 bucks. Thank you for reminding me. They're all linked on my website, uh, passingplanes.com slash book. Uh, and and the dedication I'll spoil because I think this is important is to all the production assistants uh, who are credited or not. Uh, that's one part of my dedication because it's it's many times a thankless job and the few people that do thank you, you know, it means all the more as you go along in your own career and you figure out where you're headed. Yeah, shout out to our PAs. Yeah, yeah. I do- hey PA, I don't remember your name, but. You're pretty cool. Thanks for the coffee. Next time, half and half, not milk. Thank you. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. I always stay for the names and the credits. Uh, PA's names and the credits, I stay. I haven't told this story in kind of a while, Daniel, but I think you'll appreciate it. So I, when I did go get coffee... Speaking of, um, this is more as an intern than as a, as a PA. But I would go get, I'd go on coffee runs, and I would be, I would try my hardest, and I would always fuck something up. Somebody wouldn't get cream, or they they wouldn't get the, they get a chocolate pump instead of a vanilla pump or whatever. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna drink black coffee for the rest of my life, and someday somebody's gonna have to go get me a coffee. And it's going to be as easy as possible. Black coffee, done. And I still drink black coffee to this day. Well, mine is black coffee with half and half. What's the difference? <laughs> How much half and half? I, is well, is non-dairy creamer okay? No. Well, I mean, if there's nothing what, else. If they've only got is soy okay to cream? I don't know. I prefer not. Um, yeah, yeah, coffee exactly. made or hood. People black, were specific I, about the brands. There well, you go. Black coffee, but, easy. Matt, the converse to yours, and hopefully Daniel backs me up, though he probably won't. I think like a PA that drinks coffee and knows coffee is good because the worst is when you you have a PA get you some coffee drink and then they bring you the wrong thing and you're upset and they like just don't get it. They're like, they don't what get is it. this yeah, yeah. person freaking out about? What's the yeah. difference? A half and a half in milk. It's like the same thing. Who cares? Or vanilla. Like people put the vanilla creamer in. I can just, I have, it, like literally I have to stop the shoot. <laughs> Only reason I cannot back you up, Doran, is because my definition of what good... I love coffee. I'm a coffee drinker, but my definition of a good cup of coffee was so vastly different from half the people I, I got coffee to. So I would say, this is how I drink my coffee. It's fantastic. And they would say, this is disgusting. You know, never bring it this way. It's it's subjective. Okay. Well, agree to disagree on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, Daniel, are you down to stick with us for some unpaid endorsements? I would love to. Unpaid endorsements. I got two locked and loaded ready for you. All right. So the first one, it's more of, it's a little bit, I'm chuckling because I haven't actually read the article, but it's really just an excuse to bring up maybe the most famous PA of all time. Daniel, do you know who I think of when I think of highly successful PAs? Highly successful. Abby Singer. There's, there's <laughs> no, a, that's a good oh one. Gosh. No, I, I won't, I won't leave you on the hook. Bill Kathleen Hader. Kathleen Kennedy? Oh, Bill Hader. Bill all Hader. Right. Wait, was, oh, Kathleen Kennedy. Did She did start as a PA. That's true. 
That's she true. was Steven Spielberg's assistant, I think her yeah, first yeah. job was as a PA and Spielberg yeah, yeah. plucked her. Well, Hader was like a like a proper PA PA for he was like a PA's PA for a long time. He was he was a proper gopher. And then kind of uh, lightning struck and he ended up on SNL. But like if SNL had not happened, he would have been a career PA. And so there's a Fast Company article called How Bill Hader Went from Production Assistant to SNL Hero to Leading Man. Um, that we can share in the show notes, but it's, uh, you know, always something that I found especially charming because I've always thought he was very funny um, and just was like the funny PA on set and then somehow got discovered. So, yeah, it's pretty fun. Uh, and then the other thing I have to endorse, my other endorsement is a film called uh, The Donut King, which is out. It's available on VOD. You can get it on Amazon and iTunes and all that stuff. Uh, and it's a documentary about a man who is a Cambodian refugee who came to Southern California and basically is responsible for like 85 to 90% of all of the Southern California donut shops. It's a statistical truth that like the majority, especially like in the eighties and nineties, the majority of donut shops in Southern California were owned by Cambodian refugees. And so he was this mogul, right? Like the reason that we have pink donut boxes is because of him. Like he, he, he invented spun, the color pink. He, well, no, he did it as a cost saving method. And then also pink is like good luck in Cambodian culture. And he I was like, going to say he, there must be a cultural angle. That's so yeah. interesting. Well, and it, it kind of it coincides with the advent of uh, fast food and car culture. And basically, Cambodia was under siege, right? And so there were all of these refugees. He was sponsoring, he sponsored a hundred different families. And he basically franchised out all of these mom and pop donut shops. And uh, the film is just really fun, really great, has like kind of big, broad social implications, a little bit of history. Uh, like wonderful characters, all of the different people that he helped bring over his brother-in-law started this company and that company, you know, the nature of like Winchell's and Dunkin Donuts and how they couldn't get a foothold in Southern California because of this guy. And he's a huge character as well. It's really wonderful um, and super well shot. It's by a, a DP slash director uh, named Alice Gu. And so she uh, just really wonderful, really fun, tons of style um, and a, a that perfect mixture of like entertainment value, great characters and historical and so social context all in one. So Donut King is my recommendation. Um, Daniel, what you got, buddy? Well, that's a hard act to follow. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I was locked and loaded. I'm sorry. I, I also felt like I was locked and loaded, but now I feel like I was wrong to think that I was locked and loaded. It's a very quick three-parter. I just finished reading Keeper of the Clown, My Life with Ernest by John Cherry, and I'm going to hold the book up to the people who can see it, but the cover, if you hold this on the subway while you're reading this, look up the cover on Amazon of Keeper of the Clown, it people, and you'll crazy. see Ernest played by Jim Varney. A lot of people remember. I, I, you know, I sure I like the Ernest movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ernest movies, that Jim Varney. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or, or Slinky Dog from Toy Story. Um, such a, an interesting career and Keeper of the Clown was written by the producer who uh, John Cherry, who, you know, thought up the idea of Ernest and kind of uh, brought Jim Varney on and, and gave him the role. And then the rest is history. It started with commercials. And I didn't even realize how many commercials they were like. 1500 commercials that were shot with Ernest before he made the movies that I knew him for when I was younger. Well, and they um, would do these. I remember as a kid being blown away. I was like, wow, this is crazy. They would do like basically the same spot as a one -er 
over and over and over again. They must have just like done it all day long, but for, you know, every different car dealer in every market. John Cherry wrote about how they had a few scripts that they would kind of almost like a Rolodex of jokes and scripts and say, Ernest, this works really well with dairy farms. This one works really well. Yeah. And they would just go like that. He had like a fire ants bit that was in the movies. And also they did on like the Roseville Auto Mall. And I they remember as a child just being like, what is going on? How do commercials work? Yeah. I never even understood. I, I was like, Ernest, is that like, I think as a kid, I didn't. I knew it was crazy and funny, but I never quite understood what he was. He's kind of like if Pee Wee Herman and the Micro Machines man had like a baby. <laughs> that's a great, yeah, that's a great. It's pretty analogy. good, Art. It's pretty good. I, I wanted to know more about him too. That's why I picked up the book because I knew, you know, Ernest Saves Christmas. I was watching it this year as one of my, I celebrate Christmas. It's one of my natural Christmas movies. And I said, this is a year I need to laugh. Is there more about Ernest that I can read? And I found this book. This one came out a couple of years ago, I believe. And then uh, his nephew, Jim Varney's nephew, Justin Lloyd, wrote another book called The Importance of Being Earnest. I just finished the first book. This one I haven't started yet, uh, but I'm excited to. And the reason I'm saying all this is to build up to part three of this uh, unsolicited recommendation, which is The Importance of Being Earnest. The documentary film, which was get it went into well, it was supposed to go into production in 2020, but obviously things happened. So now, if you go to beingearnestfilm.com, I just recently found out about it. Uh, I'm so excited to see that they're making a documentary about the life of Jim Varney at a time where I think the world needs to laugh a little bit more and think about some silly slapstick comedy. Well, Daniel, I had no idea you were such an earnest head. That's um. It, you're wonderful. just catching me on a week where I'm really feeling earnest, and I said, "Nope, this is this needs to be shared more." <laughs> Perfect, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I love your uh, your spinoff from unpaid endorsements of the unsolicited recommendations. You see what happens when you're trying to think of words and you can't remember what the right words are. You just go. Boy. Well, you've got 250 episodes of me stumbling through the English language, so I feel you, Daniel, and me saying like a lot. Oren, what you got, buddy? So, Matt, I know I sent you this tweet. I just put it in the cast chat, Daniel, so you can watch it, but there is this TikToker <laughs> and her name is Mad Mathies. I don't know what her real name is, but her Twitter handle is Mad, M-A-D-M-A-T-T-H-I-E-S and she's just like a TikToker that posts videos with crazy transitions in them and Somehow she just posted one video that went viral and everyone on Twitter. So I realized from this that I'm like part of like old man Twitter, which is like people that don't quite understand TikTok. Um, and all these like Hollywood people are like, oh, my God, this is like the best editing I've ever seen in a video. Um, and I was watching it and I it's basically this young woman is just in her room. She films everything by herself. And she does these, it's just these crazy transitions. Obviously, it'll be in the show notes. You can check it out. But, um, you know, she'll like push her head off screen and then her other, she like appears behind herself and um, she spins her head all the way around like 360 degrees. And it's not Instagram filters or Snap or TikTok filters or anything. It's like 100% editing. And someone that was like a showrunner on some big show, like, I don't know, it might have been like the blacklist or something. It was like, I've been in this business for industry for 30 years. This is the best editing I've ever seen. Um, and uh, so I, was I, like, I have a follow up question, though, because I think you, everyone at home is thinking, yeah, I've seen those videos or whatever. This is the fastest version 
uh, like it's jam packed. There's probably, I don't know, a hundred edits in this, you know, 30 second video or in, have you watched it frame by frame? Is she doing any sort of like wiping or blending or anything like that? Or are they strictly hard cuts? So we actually haven't gotten to my endorsement yet because that will answer it. So I'm not endorsing this video because it's already gone viral on its own, but um, I was doing what Matt is saying. I was like, how am I a 400 year old man that's been working in Los Angeles since 1932, not knowing how she's doing these amazing transitions in her bedroom. And I was literally just trying to do them. Like she does this one where her head spins all the way around. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll try to do that. I'll turn my head around halfway. Then I'll put my shirt on backwards and go, you know, put myself backwards and turn my head around and try to edit it together and after effects and I did it and it didn't even look good. It looked bad, you know? And so I did a little research on her and she has a YouTube channel where she does tutorials on her transitions and not just that, but she talks about them like they're no big deal. She's like, yeah, if you've been on TikTok, everyone does this one. You know, you push your face to the side, you do this. And she's like, people ask me um, like what editing software I use. Um, And I pretty much do everything just in the TikTok app. This is 100% done in the TikTok app. It's all cuts. The only thing she does is she'll trim the beginning and ending. She does it all herself. She's like, okay, I mean, if you want to be advanced, you can get one of these LED lights. You know, it's a new year, whatever. It's like this $12 light from Amazon. And she has a, I think she has an iPhone or something. And that's it. And she's not speed ramping or anything? No speed ramps. And that's um, really interesting. Because it's like mind boggling, right? There were a few instances where she's going so quickly and like things are smearing across the, the screen and stuff that I would imagine that like if I could pause, I would imagine that there would be instances where it looks like there's actually two instances of her on right, screen. Where you see once. her twice on screen. No, you don't. I think she does have like a fake head that she spins sometimes. But mostly she doesn't. And if you watch her tutorial video, what's amazing about it is not actually how she makes these things, but how ingrained it is in her brain where she's like, okay, so you just push your head over here and we'll bring it back. And then like a face and we'll do this and we'll do this. And and she's making the video in real time. Like she's just recording and then the next bit and the next shot and the next shot. It's like, I'll change my hat. I'll do this. Maybe I'll stick my tongue out. Maybe I'll put glasses on. It's just like she... She thinks in terms of transitions, which is like, my, I thought I did, but I, apparently I don't. Like, she'll never do a move that doesn't have an out move. You know, like, everything has an in and an out. Anyway, Mad Mathies, check her out. She's crazy. Check out the tutorials. They literally, she has like 1,200 fo- followers on um, YouTube, even though she's got like millions of people that have watched her other video. Um, she has one point, she has 1700 subscribers on YouTube and 4,000 views on this TikTok transitions for beginners. <laughs> um, so I'm like, I'm blowing the lid off this. <laughs> there you go. Well, Oren, I can't wait for you to become a TikTok star. Daniel, I can't wait for you to become a famous director. And, uh, oh, I'm, you're uh kind. and man, I can't wait for your podcast to blow up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I can't wait for tomorrow. Let's start there, right? There you go. There you go. Well, Daniel, uh, how can listeners learn more about you, keep track of what you're up to? Uh, they can visit PassingPlanes.com. I have all my social handles there, and I, I'm in the middle of figuring out how I want to do social media moving forward. Clearly, I'm doing it wrong because this uh, this woman is just blowing my mind. I can't look away from the video. I honestly cannot look away. It, it, uh, it is hypnotic, for sure. And she has multiple videos. Like, if you go to your... She has a newer one than this that she posted on Twitter. Blow my mind, mm-hmm. but I mean, yeah, 
if anybody wants to follow little old me at this point, which I don't think they're going to want to passingplanes.com. There's all sorts of different handles and stuff there. So uh, my uh, my pleasure to be here with you guys. Perfect. Well, you can also grab your book as well. If you've forgotten passingplanes.com because you're driving in your car or you're on a run or something like that, you can always go to justshootitpod.com. We'll have all the stuff that we talked about in the show notes there. Um, and you can check us out on social media at Just Shoot It Pod across Instagram and Twitter and the like. Uh, and me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm at O. Kaplan on Instagram. I'm at Smitey Pileg on Twitter and TikTok, by the way. <laughs> um, and if we would love to hear from you. If you were ever a PA that got yelled at or you uh, enjoy yelling at PAs, email us at JustShootItPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media master is Derek Aiello. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Gisard. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.